Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I'm John Agruni. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets, head writer of Cinemaholics.com, and I occasionally write books. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Hey, yeah. Hi, yeah. Whichever you one you want, Will. You can just keep going. And <laughs> it's it. a choose-your-own-adventure game. You can pick whichever one you want. Yeah, and I don't know, right. throughout the episode, I'll sprinkle up a couple options where if you want this one, you can go this way for the episode. Hmm. This way, you can go this way for the episode. It'll be fun. It'll be interactive. This is an episode where we're talking about a video game kind of movie. No, so you're, you're, always, you're slick with those transitions, Sean. You're getting <laughs> slick. Thanks. I uh, I do have to say, though, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive, all of our episodes, bonus episodes, written content. It all lives on cinemaholics.com. And hey, if you want to write into the show, send a message to me or Will. You can always send us an email. We love reading them. We haven't gotten one in a while, and I kind of miss it. So uh, make us happy this holiday. Send us your Christmas card, but as an email, I guess. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. That'll have to do, Will, until we have an official Cinemaholics address, I guess. Yeah, the Cinemaholics house. <laughs> yeah. Is that like the Snick house or something? Like, it's just a party every Saturday night. And, uh... uh. uh or is it the house where it's like Will Ferrell and that whole thing? Uh, the SNL? I'd rather not that one. <laughs> no. I like. I think it's like more like the Muppet house where it's just like a ah. bunch of uh, crazy characters are just hanging around. I like that. Yeah. You, me, yeah. Sam Nolan, Corey Woodruff, mm-hmm. the whole gang. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you want to help make that house a reality, you can always support us on Patreon. Uh, go to patreon.com slash cinemaholics, check it out, see the details, see if it's for you. Uh, we really love our patrons, and going into our off-topics, one of the big perks of being a patron is that you get to listen to our extra milestone episodes a little bit early. So our latest extra milestone, which is late, uh, was for the month of November. Spoiler alert, it's December right now. That's out uh, at the moment, and it's one of those times where we had to put it out really fast, so it's an uncut version. So if you're a patron, that means you get to listen to the uncut version. And then if you're curious, you can listen and see how much editing goes into this, how how crazy different the audio the audio can be and all of the awkward transitions. There's a lot of mistakes in there. And uh, especially because when I was going through it, I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is this is in that uncut version. So uh, our patrons, they, they get the best content, I guess. They get us at our most raw an uncut gem, I like to think. Thank you, thank you. Yes. So that extra milestone is for Monty Python's Life of Brian. Sam Nolan and I talked about that really landmark comedy. And, Will, I'm very sad you couldn't be on, on that panel because Life of Brian is definitely yeah. a film you treasure. Yeah, no, it's it's probably my favorite. Uh, I don't know. I go back and forth a lot on what my favorite uh, Monty Python movie is. But mm. I would say quality-wise, that's probably the strongest it's my favorite now because um, I saw it for the yeah. first time as you listen on the show and I I love it way more than Holy Grail. But that's because I don't love Holy Grail to begin with. So that's my problem. That's a, that's a John problem. I think some people are starting to say <laughs> that's a that's the catchphrase I'm trying to. Yeah. Get, get to off start the ground. The, the, uh, yeah. The kickstart. Uh, <laughs> that's a John Negroni problem problem. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna ruin yeah. it if I if I take it, though. That's the thing. I have to pretend like it bugs me. Yeah, it's like it has to be like a like eat my shorts kind of thing where I have to say it to you. Right. It's got to make me feel. Yeah, I can't make it sound like I'm in on it. Yeah. Like um, if Principal Skinner says eat my shorts, and it doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But that's the John Negroni problem. <laughs> Jeez. 
So we we have a this doesn't usually happen, but we made a couple of mistakes last week. I know what you're thinking. Wow, you haven't done a corrections part of of Cinemaholics in forever. You guys must a really blemish on our perfect record. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Zero days since our last nonsense. But yeah, we uh, we, we had two little flubs last week. Will, you said Force Majeure, which is a Swedish film. Uh, you said it was on Netflix. It's not on Netflix. It's on Hulu. So there's mm-hmm. that. Um, would you like to say anything to make it up to the listeners who are disappointed, distraught over this? Um, I mean, in my defense, I said I think it's on Netflix. So that implies mm. that I wasn't certain. And therefore, there was some room for ambiguity there. I might have to roll back the tape. I don't know. But um, if if anyone was going on to Netflix, hoping to watch Force Mature and didn't see it there based on what I said, then I apologize. All right. And uh, this one's my mistake. I I said Tom Hanks is in the running for Best Supporting Actor, which is not true. <laughs> or no, I said he's in the running for Best Actor. He's in the running for yeah. Best Supporting Actor. That was just a, a brain lapse. I think when we, we've said, oh, oh, and Best Actor is so competitive. And I was listing them off. I was thinking Tom Hanks, but. Yeah, there's no he's not he's not being submitted for best actor or anything like that. That wouldn't make sense. He's a supporting actor through and through. Uh, I just kind of had him on the brain. I think about Tom Hanks a lot is what I'm trying to say. So he's always always at the forefront of my mind. And uh, that's not changing anytime soon. So I I apologize in advance for the next time that happens. Well, that reminds me of something. Uh, Corey Witcher, a friend of the podcast, was telling me that Scarlett Johansson would be a supporting for Marriage Story as well as possibly what? Jojo Rabbit. But I'm pretty sure she's campaigning as a lead, right? Yeah, that's for what that I movie thought for too. Story. I think Jojo Rabbit definitely supporting would make sense. But yeah, I haven't heard anything about her right. being supporting for Marriage Story. I yeah, I didn't hear anything about that until he mentioned it. But I mean, it's, I don't know. The, the the Oscars like definition of actor or best like lead actor and best supporting actor is often so vague that yeah. I mean it, I, I don't know I mean like wasn't like Haley Steinfeld nominated for best supporting actress for True Grit and she's like the lead of that movie just absolutely insane I was just rewatching a clip from that movie uh, a couple of weeks ago and she is uh, just tremendous but oh she's great in the movie I just so that was this a happens best a lot actress performance yeah exactly not best supporting actors yeah. This happens a lot, though. Sometimes they just pitch certain things. They want certain actors and actresses to be pitched because they have a ch- better chance of winning. And we kind of mm-hmm. dealt with this last year with the favorite, right? Yeah. Well, that one they actually kind of did in a clever way where it was like they they put Olivia Coleman in the best actress because that was yeah. like the high arc. Yeah. Which is kind of clever. I, th- I thought that was fun. And it worked out because she won. Yeah. So we well, it worked out for her. <laughs> we have an awesome episode for you all. When don't we? But this week, we're going to be talking about Jumanji, The Next Level. We're also going to be talking about Black Christmas, the new horror slasher set around Christmas, and Richard Jewell, which I've seen, but you haven't, but we're still going to talk about it. And then we'll finish out the episode with a review of Six Underground, the Michael Bay Netflix Bayhem movie. Mm -hmm. Which I have seen. Which you've seen, yes. Uh, Before we get to all of that, though, uh, a few films to get to in our off-topic section well, I don't know about you, but I've been cramming so much. Uh, the end of the year is upon us, and I've been trying to squeeze mm-hmm. in a lot of films. Uh, there's a couple that I, I've started but haven't had a chance to finish. I won't say what they are now. There's two in particular that I just keep getting interrupted. Sometimes I interrupt myself. Like, I legitimately, I should have been watching uh, one of these films. But instead, I found myself watching 
Treasure Planet. And then another time I found myself watching Mulan 2. And then another time I found myself watching The Hunchback of Notre Dame. What I'm trying to say is Disney Plus is ruining my life or at least ruining my my enterprise as somebody who catches up on 2019 films. That's something I'm dealing with personally. But what about you? Are you yeah, are you John cramming right problem. now? That's dang it. <laughs> oh man, that really bugs me. Uh but Will, what about you? Have you been uh have you been trying to catch up? Uh yeah. I mean, I have not been particularly good in the last week or so of catching up on some of the movies I want to put on my best of the year list, but I caught a few. Uh, and I'll talk about a few of them in a bit, but um Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been I've been trying my best, but um, I haven't been as diligent as I want to be. But a lot of them are on Hulu and Netflix right now, which I have. Um, so I'll, I'm going to hope in the next couple days, maybe next couple weeks to catch up on some big ones that I want to see for the end of the year list. Yeah, really briefly, I'll go through a couple of the films that I've caught up on that people might be interested in. First, I saw Hala which is now on Apple TV+. Plus. This premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and I wanted to see it. I, I missed it, unfortunately. It had a limited release back in November. Uh, this is the drama written directed by Min Hall Bai. She's one of, the, one of the writers for BoJack Horseman. And I have to say, I, I didn't love it. I, I liked it, though. Uh, this is stars Geraldine, and, and I never know how to pronounce her last name correctly, but it's something like Viswanathan or something to that fact she was wonderful in blockers for example and miracle workers yeah and she she shot this film quite a while back i think um i think they were like casted way back in like 2017 and so this is just now coming out and i really hope it raises her profile especially because she's just a total star also gabriel luna is in this film which i was really surprised because uh, the terminator from terminator dark fate uh that really mm. really caught me off guard so hala yeah it was kind of like a b minus film for me i also saw atlantics or atlantique in french this is a a french sort of i, I Saying the genre could actually classify as a spoiler, so I won't say, but it starts off as like a romantic drama film that's set in Senegal. It was directed by Mathilde Dio, who is a French actress, and we were talking about this off the air. She was in the 2008 film 35 Shots of Rum, and she happens to be the first black female director to be in contention for the Cannes Film Festival's Palme d'Or, which you and I have talked about on the show quite a bit. And mm-hmm. it's got a lot of buzz, Atlantics, and it's on Netflix now. You can all watch it. I did, and I appreciate the film. I think it's it has a delightfully weird turn that I won't give away, of course. But I just found it to just not be quite my speed. I think that it, it's very plotting. It's a bit slow. Whereas like with Hala, I thought it was too focused on this like one dynamic that I wasn't as interested in. This film is too focused on a bunch of different competing threads. And I just found myself not that engaged with it. I like it fine. Another B minus film, but not a film that I necessarily consider one of the, one of the real standouts uh, lately, but I hope that it gets some attention because I like the boldness and it really swings for the fences. This next film though, it's probably the best film that I've, I've caught up on. And that's, I lost my body, which of all of these films is the one that I hope you see the most. This is another Netflix film, another French Netflix film that happened to, I think, premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, it actually won a prize, too. Uh, It was the first animated film to ever win the Nespresso Grand Prize. 
And this one's directed by Jer- uh, Jeremy Clapin, I think is how you pronounce it. I, uh, French, it's, it's French, so I think it's pronounced a little bit differently than how I just said it. But he wrote the screenplay with um, Guillaume Laurent. And this is a very weird animated film, very high concept, but it's like the merging of like high concept body horror with a really, really affecting emotional drama that had me just feeling really melancholy, but the kind of good melancholy, like the bittersweet sadness you kind of want from an animated film that's this hand-drawn and beautiful. It's, it's kind of got like a watercolor aesthetic to it. But it really works because it, it moves so much. There's like a really good energy and flow to the animation. It It's not for everybody, for sure. I think some people are going to find it a little bit too, if not depressing, it, it's very depressing. But if not depressing, also kind of bleak. And I, I just really liked it, though, for that. I liked the emotion it got out of me. And I really liked how dark and it's, it's a little bit like uh, almost bloody at times. It's never gory, to be clear. But there's like some like straight up horror in this that comes out of nowhere that I really appreciated. And uh, Dev Patel voices the main character and he just, uh, man, he just, he was the perfect casting choice. I'll put it that way. He's just, he makes his character seem so alive and and in his sadness. So that's I Lost My Body. And Will, when you watch it, we're going to have to have a conversation because this one's, this one's worth seeking out. Yeah, I really want to see this. Uh, just got a couple more. There's the Peanut Butter Falcon, which you've been recommending to me. I, I also really like this one too. This this one was just you, you were spot on when you were like, this is like a. I would say I lost my body is like a B plus. This is like a B and like a good B, you know. This is the mm-hmm. Shia LaBeouf film with Zach Atzagin, Dakota Johnson. You reviewed it on the show before, so a lot of the listeners are aware of it. Uh, I was able to rent it on iTunes. I'm not sure if you can stream it anywhere yet. Hopefully you can soon. It's it's a quick film. I I really enjoyed it the whole way through. Had a good, just uh, uplifting sort of experience with this. And yeah, it's, it's so, I can't imagine somebody watching this and, and actively disliking it. You know, I, I, I just, it, it's like the most yeah. Sundance-y kind of movie, but in a good way, I guess. Like, it's just it's just an easy watch, like a good comfort watch. So I'll probably watch it again for that reason. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I agree with you that I think it's like just so good natured and sweet that like at most I could see someone being like, yeah, it wasn't really my thing. But yeah. like to actively dislike it, I can't see that really. I'm sure somebody does, but it's it's pretty hard. Worth to giving really a shot. Be against this movie. Yeah, I guess there's a first for everything. Yeah, sure. And then last uh, transit which is technically a 2018 film came out in Germany last year, but it's just now coming by way of the States. We're just now able to see it. I believe it premiered at the Berlin international film festival. So it's been out for a while. And this one I watched a bit blind and I was very confused about the premise until I I literally had to pause and look it up. I was like, what in the world is going on in this movie? It sort of helps to know that it's like a modern day adaptation sort of what if story kind of like man in the high castle but not quite that high concept it's based on a 1944 novel and uh i know you've seen this one already will you kind of Mm -hmm. cautioned me with it 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 seemed like you weren't as high up on it as a lot of other critics who were saying it's one of the year's best yeah i mean i definitely appreciate a lot there's definitely some shots uh Mm -hmm. particularly towards the end of the film that i really really liked um, but I didn't really fully get immersed in it. Maybe for similar reasons that you're talking about, because it's all in theaters. And like you, I really didn't know that much going in. And I saw this back in the spring before it was like really a 
like a warts or uh, end the year contender. So I just like came in. I was like kind of confused. I was like, what is this? Like it took me like, like you said, like a little bit into the movie to really get like what it was going for. Yeah. And then I think that's when I was starting to appreciate it. So maybe on a second rewatch, I, I, I'll get more out of it. But yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I just didn't yeah. love it the way that a lot of people are. So it was directed by Christian Petzold, who is a fantastic German film director. And yeah, just to be clear, it it, it is a film that takes a, a while for you to get engaged in. It's about a german political refugee who has to like fake his identity and go on this sort of journey to escape a an occupied version of france it's but it's the modern day but it's adapting sort of what the but refugees went through during world war ii so it it's fascinating in that respect because it's it's sort of saying like what if the nazis happen right now but using like that direct parallel it's not like a an allegory it's it's just sort of moving that up the timeline once you get that and there's this whole section of this film the, the bulk of the film takes place in marseille that's where i think the film starts to really find it's like this is what we're here for moment and that would, for me especially was when i got into it and it, it stuck with me i was telling you off the air like uh, of all of these films except for maybe i lost my body transit's the one i'm still thinking about the most it's the one that really had an effect on me and I, I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon Prime right now, so you can watch it that way. And man, I really hope people do because it's it's worth giving a shot. Uh, maybe look into it if you're confu- as confused as I was. But it's certainly one of the more interesting films to, to come my way that I've seen through Amazon Prime especially. But that's just because I've, I already watched like Honey Boy, I guess. So Honey Boy is also another really good one on that service. And One Child Nation, which I think I might have briefly mentioned I watched from last week the prime video just has really good content right now well i'm i i know netflix is kind of getting all of the attention at the moment because they have just like this really great string of critically acclaimed oscar contenders but prime video is not out like they're still putting out good work yeah i mean i don't have a wait you're talking about amazon prime right yeah yeah i don't have amazon prime but i i've been seeing a lot of stuff on there i'm like oh, i want to watch that and oh, I got to check that out. So I don't know. Maybe I'll get uh, or ask for it for Christmas or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. So before we move on, you have a couple second opinion reviews. These are films that have already been discussed on the show before. What's the first one? Will, what do you want to talk about? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you talked about it last week, but I got a chance to see 1917 on Wednesday. I talked about it two weeks ago. Was it two weeks ago? Yeah, because last week was huh. the winter movie preview. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, my bad. Anyway, um, this is the new Sam Mendes movie. Um, he also shot it with Roger Deakins. Uh, usually, we don't really bring up the cinematographers that high up, but I think it's kind of necessary for this film because um, this is quite notably made to look like one single shot, more in the vein, I guess, of like Birdman than like something like Russian Ark or um like what was that one movie veronica or something where it's like you can kind of see some like secret edits in there but it's like made to look like one continuous shot in real time to um kind of parallel the uh headspace of a uh, soldier in world war one and for me i know you really enjoyed this one i liked it a good bit but i 
think the one shot aspect of it, while certainly commendable, kind of prevented me from being fully immersed into the film because I constantly was thinking about the execution as opposed to being enraptured in the story itself, which I don't know if that's just something for me. I've, I've heard a few people say similar things to that, but you can't ignore the craft of it. It's definitely a very well made movie. Obviously, Roger Deakins can do no wrong. Um, get this movie, obviously, if it gets best cinematography, well-deserved. If it gets best director, I can understand that. But for me, it reminded me a good bit of The Revenant in that regard, where it's like the quality of it is fairly undeniable, but I didn't really get that much out of the film itself. Like, I haven't really been thinking about it much after I saw it. I haven't lingered on its themes in any particular way. It's just one of those films. And I did really enjoy the last 30 minutes or so, where I think that was where the continuous shot really affected me, um, particularly during the climactic scene without giving anything away. I felt that was really well, a really good case of how they can use that single take shot uh, in, a, in a very effective time uh, effect. Or, well, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Uh, like the very like uh, effectively intense sort of way is what I think I'm trying to say. So yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I'd probably give it a good solid B, but I'm not quite in the A minus territory, if I'm remembering correctly. I forget if you gave an A minus yeah. or a B plus, but yeah, I was a big, I was a big A minus on this one. Okay, I, I can see why it's going to end up on people's end of the year list. It just didn't really have as much an emotional effect on me. Besides, I'd say maybe the last scene of the film. But then you could argue that you know, like, is this that scene effective because of the long take thing? I, I it's hard to say, but. For me, I, I liked it in a, a you know, brief cinematic experience, and I certainly appreciated the technicalities of it, but I don't know if I really got the full immersive experience that was uh, intended here. Wasn't uh, Lubezki the cinematographer for Revenant and Birdman? Yeah. Because I, I, if I recall correctly, I think he was competing with Roger Deakins in mm-hmm. that year for the revenant in terms of like best cinematographer right. and i i've always been a champion of deacons and so that's why like yeah i definitely don't agree because i know what you're talking about with like revenant you're saying like the quality you, you like but the movie itself not as much like the story uh, i think is what you're saying there and i agree when it comes to the revenant for sure the revenant is not a film that i really enjoyed personally and I would say mm-hmm. the same thing about Birdman. I- I've always really wanted okay. to like well, don't Alexander in order to. I just don't like Birdman much. Yeah. I- and it's not the one shot thing. I know that-, that that tends to be the main complaint. Birdman just kind of like, I don't know. I-, I just didn't have a connection to it. It sounds like maybe I had a reaction similar to what you have with 1917, where it's easy to respect the craft because the craft is like mm-hmm. obviously there. And I think with Birdman, yeah. especially, it's the- it's all about the performances in that one. It, for 1917, I, I just, yeah, something about that film really just connected with me on a, on a different level. I think that's why it really stood out. Uh, I'd say in addition to the climactic scene, like there's a scene right before the climactic scene that just solidified what this movie was for me. So sad to hear it wasn't as high up for you, but I'm not too surprised. I, I, I did sort of walk out of it wondering if it really was going to have a similar effect on other people. And I think I think it's easy to recommend, though. I think I think enough people we recommend it to are going to watch it and have at least if they have at least as good an experience with it as you did, like a B sort of movie. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and even better yeah. if they if they really love it like I do. So that's uh, definitely a good sign. I will say, I mean, it is coming out in a crowded market, but if you do get a chance to see it in theaters, that's definitely the optimal yeah. way of seeing it, because um, 
you know, seeing it in one sitting obviously is crucial, I I would say, to enjoying the film. But um, certainly the, the full immersive experience, if you if you do get yourself very much taken up with the story as well as the craft of it, I think seeing theaters will be the optimal way of seeing it. Yeah, fully agree. All right, Will. And then you also watched another film and I haven't seen it, but Sam did. And he talked about it a little while back. Mm-hmm. What is that one? Yeah, that's uh, it's actually one I talked about last week when we were talking about our um, end of the year or not end of year winter preview uh, yeah. for 2019, and that would be Peter Strickland's In Fabric. It's an A24 release. Um, I believe it came out in the festival scene last year, and it's it been... did. Yeah, I think it premiered at TIFF. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. Yeah, and then it came out in the UK. Yeah, this past summer, mm-hmm. and then it's just now getting a release in the US. Right. And I know it's been getting a pretty extensive film festival release, and I think I know why. And it's a reason I speculated either in our previous review or in last week's episode, and I'll get to it in a bit. But yeah, this is from the director of um, uh, Dukes of Burgundy, which is not a film I've seen, but I know a lot of people when that came out, I believe that was 2014 or 2015, maybe for the States. Um, a lot of people really, really liked that. It might have been even earlier. Was it? No, no, maybe You're right. You're right. It was 2014. That's what I thought. I yeah, something else. I so it was one of those movies, kind of similar to Force Majeure. When I know when it came out, a lot of people had it in their top ten list. I met to see it, and I just uh, had I never got around to it. Um, but yeah, that was one that I know a lot of people. It wasn't for everybody, but a lot of people who saw it really, really dug it. And I think something similar might happen with this film, where um, this is a horror comedy. It was more of a horror film than a comedy, which wasn't what I anticipated. And the general gist of it is basically a dress uh, is alive and it's killing people, uh, which sounds a little bit more hokey than I think the execution would suggest because the film presentation is very sleek. It's obviously very much inspired by David Lynch and Dario Argento. Uh, There is definitely a lot of craftsmanship put into the presentation of what can essentially seem like a very kind of silly B-movie type premise, but it's no, it's even stranger than I anticipated, which is saying something because I was expecting it to be very, very weird. Uh, and I don't know if I fully appreciated everything it was doing because it takes a lot of swings by the end that I think made me appreciate more or less at the same time, if that makes sense, where it's like one of those things where I really appreciate how goofy this movie got. But at the same time, by getting even goofier, that kind of got me less and less involved with the story and kind of more just kind of appreciating the bombast of this whole thing. But it's very well made. Uh, definitely got a lot of good belly laughs out of this, and surprisingly, good, quite a few good creeps as well. Uh, like I said, I was I was coming into this more, I think, expecting a dark comedy, and I actually found myself rather puzzlingly surprised as far as how well this movie executed its horror element. So, uh, again, this one I can't see this working for everybody. It's a very strange, off kilter movie that uh, I think if you watch like the first fifteen minutes and you're just like. I don't know if I'm feeling this. Maybe give it like 30 minutes. If you're not really digging it, then then you can probably clock out. But I would say if you think this is something just based on the trailer, anything you might have heard that seems like it's in your wheelhouse, I'd definitely give it a shot just because it's A24. I think every A24 film that I've seen, even the ones I don't like, I, I tend to get something out of. It's just like, well, it's not what I would normally get out of a theater experience. And that's certainly the case here. Um, I'm going to give it a good solid B. Uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it, but again, it didn't quite hit me as hard as I was anticipating, but that's fine. I had a good time all the same. All right. That's in fabric. You know, to be honest, this one's not high on my priority list. It just, 
doesn't really sure. look like the kind of film I want to see at the moment, but I have a feeling I'll be checking out eventually. Like as soon as it's on like some sort of streaming service, it's the kind of thing I'll probably watch like late at night, you know, and I'll be all yeah. under my covers, have the old iPad out and I'm just going to see mm-hmm. what this killer dress is up to. Cause I do like premises like this. I like, for example, like velvet buzzsaw, which I know is no nowhere near as weird as this from what I've heard. But yeah. uh, at least the sense of like everyday objects, killing things, we all know that that's my jam. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that is in fact a John problem as someone's uh, erroneously say it's a John solution. Yeah. Sure. You're trying to kill the catchphrase before you even catches fire. I, 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 I'm <laughs> not a fan of that, but uh, I will say, I think it's probably going to be on Amazon prime, right? I mean, if it's an a 24 film, that's usually where most of them go, if I'm not mistaken. All right, let's get into our featured review this week, which is Jumanji, the next level. So, okay, two years ago, we reviewed Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which is the second Jumanji film, not the first. It's not it's not Jumanji 1, and this is Jumanji 2. Let's just get that out of the way. But we reviewed Welcome to the Jungle a couple years ago, December 2017, on this show. And to this day, it is this weirdly popular episode on YouTube. And the big theory that Will and I have is that a lot of people don't read the title and they assume it's the actual movie. But regardless, yeah. if you if you factor in the numbers, misunderstanding or not, this is our biggest episode ever because it's it's like almost three million views at this point. So welcome to the jungle. It's our heavyweight, Will. So the, the pressure's on. This review yeah. has to really take things to the next level, if you know what I mean. And if you started listening to the show during our Welcome to the Jungle episode and you're still listening to us, then hey. special shout out to you. How's it going? Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. I'm Will. I'm John. Let's talk about this movie. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> now, if I recall, when Welcome to the Jungle came out, you, me, and Maverick, we were we were way less favorable on this than a lot of other critics. You and I gave it yeah. C pluses. Maverick gave it a mm-hmm. C. But a lot of people like like this movie like I, other people were way more high up on it it wasn't like the best movie of the year or anything like that but people were more like mm-hmm. b b plus territory from their enthusiasm if we were to infer yeah no people really did enjoy that last movie and i don't quite get that because to me i just remember that second jumanji movie being like the like broad definition of a like perfectly mediocre uh studio movie where it's just like fine for what it is not really offensively bad in a particular way yeah. Or notably good. It was just like very middle of the road, fine, it did job, whatever kind of movie that somehow made a billion dollars at the box office. Yeah. And we said good things about it because there, there are good things in it. And I, I remember like, yeah, we, we weren't saying I, I don't remember saying anything that was like outright bad about the movie. And I, I honestly I thought the whole idea to redo the board game concept from the first movie into a video game sort of thing. I thought that was a really good idea. And I thought in some ways they carry it out in interesting ways. My, my big issue was that I, I didn't think it did enough to make fun of video games or to get into video game tropes. But the stuff that they did, I thought was was fine. And, then, you know, it's, it was funny at times. I just ultimately, I didn't find it to be funny enough. Like, I, I just thought for as long as it was... It, it wasn't funny enough to be a really great comedy and it wasn't exciting enough to be a really memorable action movie. I, I just kind of ended up feeling like it was pretty empty and I, I feel validated in that because I, I think looking back on the film now, like I don't remember much of it. And then 
I was almost sort of glad that the next level, this new film, spends so much time like ex- re-explaining a lot of this stuff because I forgot so much uh, from the mm-hmm. movie. But that's you and me. We ha- we had a different experience. Clearly, other people had a uh, a big connection with it because it it garnered a huge following over time. Uh, there was even a, a critic that I respect who didn't like it uh, for the same reasons you and I didn't. But eventually, like rewatched it and was like, you know what? Like I, I didn't give this movie a fair shake. Uh, so after all this success, we now have a sequel, Jumanji: The Next Level. It has a lot of the same actors. It has Jake Hasden returning as director. So setting this up, the movie starts off years later as the teenage misfits are now estranged friends who went off to college recently and they're meeting up again over the holidays to catch up. But there's a slasher on the loose because it's a black Christmas. Just kidding. It's not that movie. But yeah, so Spencer, the uh, the nerdy and neurotic boy played by Alex Wolf, is feeling he's feeling depressed about all of these recent changes and his relationship with Martha from the first movie played by Morgan Turner. I should say the second movie. She this relationship, it, uh, it appears to be on the rocks, not going so great. So eventually Spencer's friends try to find him because he's gone missing and it looks like he went back into the Jumanji game. So in order to save their friend, they decide to risk their lives yet again and return to the treacherous Jumanji. But this time, two stowaways have accidentally traveled with them. We have Spencer's grandfather, played by Danny DeVito, who's entered the game as Bravestone, the super strong action hero from the last movie, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and Danny Glover, an old family friend who enters the game as a zoologist, played by Kevin Hart. Now, in general, the characters have been switched up a bit across the board. Fridge, played by Sir Darius Blaine, is now the the seemingly useless cartographer, played by Jack Black. But Martha, she's still Ruby Roundhouse, the dance-fighting heroine, played by Karen Gillan. In this clip, everyone has just landed into the game, and here's their slow discovery of what's apparently going on. (laughs) What in tarnation? Where am I? Who the hell are you? I'm Milo Walker. Who are you? Milo? You're Spencer's grandfather. Yeah, no kidding. And you are Milo. I certainly am. Are we dead? You know, I was just wondering the same thing. Did I die and turn into some kind of a small, muscular boy scout? We're not dead. So then what's going on here? We are in a video game called Jumanji, and we are in the bodies of video game characters. (laughs) We gotta find Spencer, because he's in here too. Spencer Eddie's grandson. Yes, Spencer. He's here too? Yes. Yes. He's here, and we gotta find him. So it's like a hide-and-go-seek situation. I'm not it. All right, so that is Jumanji. Uh the next level and that joke happens a lot in this movie like that whole sort yeah. of like the grandparents don't understand what's going on they really come back to that quite a bit i won't give away everything else that happens like there, there's another actor who's in this movie who comes into play and i guess that counts as a spoiler is is it a, do you think it's a spoiler to bring up that somebody else is in this movie that's kind of famous um are you talking about aquafina yeah, well, there it is. So Aquafine is in this movie. But yeah. we, we can, well, it's not a spoiler to say she's in the movie. It might yeah, be a spoiler yeah. to say who she is. Sure, sure. In yeah, the movie. we don't have to go there. Like the same with like, well, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say, the, I was going to say another cameo, but that one, that one is actually a spoiler, I think. So I won't, I won't divulge what that one was. But it, yeah, it's not a spoiler to say Aquafine is in it. 
I forgot to say to the the actor who plays the Hound in Game of Thrones is the big bad in this, and uh, I think Roy McCann. Or Roy, I forget his full name, but yeah. So that's basically the setup. It's the it's Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle again, but with a couple of different wrinkles. And I didn't think there was enough that was different. I I was kind of confused by this movie. Well, I I don't understand if it's a sequel, but there was nothing sequel about it. Like there was nothing about this movie where I felt like, yeah, they, it's a good thing they made this movie because they really pushed what the last movie was doing. But it doesn't. I, I don't know. I at least can appreciate Welcome to the Jungle because that film really tried to do something new. It felt more of like a reboot of like trying something different, starting a new trilogy, that sort of thing, or a, a first trilogy for Jumanji. Whereas this film, you really get the sense of like, yeah, they, they just want another they just want to cash another check at the box office here. They just want to do what worked last time and not much else. But what did you think? Well, it's kind of fascinating that I guess indirectly all three movies, like the, all the three main releases that we're talking about this week, uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Black Christmas and Richard Jewell, um, all were filmed in 2019. Like I believe this started production in February. It ended in May and they came out in December. And I think it pretty much shows uh, that there's a very quick turnaround from that last Jumanji movie to this one, because uh, similar to what you're saying, um, I think I was a little more receptive to the trailer for this one as far as like just announcing what the premise was as far as um, like having the characters switch personalities, the avatars being different people than we remember them from before. I think that's a fun inspired concept for a sequel. But similar to you, I just think that once you get that out of the way, uh, as well as a like weirdly sort of half-assed meditative uh, opening where it's like talking about the contemplate like contemplating about like life passing on and like seizing a day and stuff like that it, it just becomes like you you were mentioning just a fairly uh repetitive run-of-the-mill action comedy thing where it's like they establish early on that like they're very forgetful uh clueless older men the rock and kevin hart i mean as uh dan devito and uh, uh danny glover's character characters um, and it's just weird because like, they don't really establish that they're forgetful in the real world. So it's just like that joke doesn't really land yeah. in the beginning. Cause it's like, it's not like they established that from the beginning. Just like, that's just like a stereotype about old people. But if they don't do the legwork to have that be established in the real world, then that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, it's just like, it's, it's whatever the first time. And then by 50th, the 50th time they do it, it's just like, okay, is this, is this all the movie's going to be? And then you have, uh, Jack Black playing basically an African American character, which is just sketchy to begin with, yeah. uh, from comedy standpoint in 2019, like he braids a very, very thin ice on that. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't think he nails it. I, and I love Jack Black, but it's just like, that's very hard to do. And he relies a lot on stereotypes as well. And that just, I don't know, that, that didn't sit well with me. I don't know where it, you sat with that. I, I'm the same. And I, to add to your, the Danny DeVito and Danny Glover aspect, I think a strength of the last movie was you didn't, you, you didn't have to put this on Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart to be impersonating well-known actors like that was kind of the point of yeah. that last movie was that you could just let them do light impressions of archetypes right and so that was a little bit easier for the audience to get because you don't know those teenage characters well we're, we're barely introduced to them 
I mean, we did see a little bit of the rock playing against type a little bit in that first movie, but they're like leaning that, on that's that. That's what I'm saying, though. He's playing, though, against an archetype, not like an established right. actor we know. That's the difference. We're here. Mm-hmm. Right. Dwayne Johnson trying to act like Danny DeVito. It just doesn't. It, to me, it didn't work at all. Like, I, I was like, I don't know who you're trying to be. You're just trying to be like a generic. He, they're doing the archetype yeah. again, but the archetype isn't specific to Danny DeVito. It's just sort of specific to like, like you said, like a forgetful kind of like East coast grandfather guy. Who's kind of like yeah. full of himself. And then the Danny Glover thing that was slightly closer, but that's not Danny Glover. I, I, I've seen a lot of people like really praise the impression that Kevin Hart does. And I think it's funny in theory, but at no point was like, yeah, that's Danny Glover. All right. Um, it's hard when you see Danny so. Glover, but it's hard when you see Danny Glover in this movie and he doesn't talk like that in the movie. Like he's right. talking like he's from like the early 1900s. Like it, there's just something really weird mm-hmm. about it. Like the Sam Hill and all this stuff. And I'm like, where, where was that established? I, I don't know. I just, I had a hard time connecting with what Kevin Hart was doing there. Cause I think it was the, the note was just to be funny with it, not to be true yeah. to the like internal logic. Well, I agree with you that it wasn't like, it wasn't seamless as far as his impression of, uh, Dan, Don, I keep on, yeah, Danny Glover. I keep wanting to call him Donald Glover, but yeah, it's Danny Glover. Um, can you imagine Danny Glover is childish Ambino? Can you just, yeah, <laughs> oh, man, if only this is um, America. I do remember though, when they first proposed, uh, Donald Glover, being spider-man before miles morales became a thing mm-hmm. uh they they mentioned danny glover should be um uncle ben and i was just like how can you not do this premise this is so good <laughs> but oh well yeah it all worked out in the end but um in any case uh yeah i i, I actually i'm gonna push back a little bit because i do think and normally i wasn't i normally don't think this way and i uh typically am not a big fan of kevin hart but I thought he was probably the MVP of this movie. Like he's if there was anybody in this movie that was making me laugh, it was Kevin Hart. And I mm. think between this and the upside, like neither of those are movies, neither of these are movies I like, but I think he is at least showing signs that he's like trying to push against what we typically know from like the star image of uh Kevin Hart in his movies. And I appreciate that he's doing some different things. I don't think he's like quite like blown me away yet with any performance, but um, I, I was, if I got any real laughs from this movie, it was either Danny DeVito at the beginning or, uh, Kevin Hart in the, the video game segments. I, I sort of agree. Cause he is funny. Like he's funnier than the Jack Black character for sure. Yeah. Way funnier than the rock. I, I just have an issue with the impression itself, but I, I guess I see your point. I just, I, I don't know. There, there was something about it that was starting to, to drain me <laughs> after a while because it got a little bit old. Oh, I felt that, but I felt that about the whole movie. Sure, the whole movie sure. just drained me. I feel bad because I know some people are liking this one, and obviously we're not as hot on it. But yeah, I just have to be honest. I the subplots in here were very weak to me. Like there was something more mm. interesting about the last film, where it was like it was basic, but it was a more relatable sort of thing. And this film drops its more relatable teenage subplot of like how Spencer is feeling about everything because he's not in a big chunk of this movie. They, they they don't really get to the heart of what's going on with them to the point where part of this movie, it's feeling like it's going to tackle some really deep stuff about depression and suicide, yeah. but then it completely drops it and has a silver linings playbook sort of like solution to all this stuff. And I thought, I thought it was woeful. Oh, like, honestly, when they resolve what's going on there, I, I was frankly just like, 
I felt insulted a little bit by the screenwriting going on because it was like, you clearly don't care about this part of the plot or the plot in general. And then I would add that just, just to say with like, with the whole, the whole strangeness going on between DeVito and Glover, I, I just didn't buy it. I, there was just nothing, nothing about it where I was like, I really want to see this plot follow through and see what's going to happen with them. I would have, uh, volu- well, not volu- I would have proposed putting more Dan DeVito in this movie anywhere possible. Sure. Just because Dan DeVito is the only consistently entertaining thing in the movie for me. And I think that's just more my personal appreciation for Dan DeVito. And just like, if you're going to have, if you're going to cast Dan DeVito, put him in as many scenes as you can. Like, I don't care if he, you find a way to put him in the video game itself. Have it backwards. Have Dan DeVito play every character in the movie. I don't care. <laughs> like, I, I would rather see Dan DeVito do his thing as an old man. I think I told you this off the air. Like, I had more fun watching Dan DeVito play the video game than had any of the video game segments of the film. So I don't know if that's just a, a, a me thing or if I, I, I'm just not quite getting the same experience other people are getting out of it. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, I really felt drained by this film by the end, like in a way that was like, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I see a lot of these blockbusters I don't care about these days and a lot of them I'm mostly just like, whatever, like I don't really connect them in any particular way, but I, I let them go and that's fine. And I guess that's kind of true to an extent here, but at the same time, like, like I checked my phone afterwards and I was like, I thought it was like two and a half hours had passed when this movie was done and it was only like a little under two hours which i guess is based on the just the egregious pacing of the movie which just feels like it goes on forever uh and a half and i yeah it i don't know i mean people like these movies it's bad when it's it's so slavish to the three-act structure which is not a bad thing but when you're so aware of like oh my gosh like this this can't even be close to over yet because we're not even close to the third act I had so many moments when that was going on. I I had a question, though. Speaking of Danny DeVito and more of him, did you catch who Lucy DeVito was in this? I heard she was cast in it, but I didn't see her in this movie or notice her. Oh, I didn't see her. No, I didn't see her at all. Yeah, she... uh, She might have been at the the diner or something, but I didn't didn't catch her. Huh. Unfortunately, I didn't. Hopefully some eagle-eyed listeners can let us know in the comment section on cinemaholics.com. I mean, I know, like, I'm familiar with her. Uh, I just, I didn't see her in this movie, so. Sure. I must have missed it. Yeah, I heard she's in the new season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, reprising her role there. Oh, is she? Yeah, I think so. Um, I was gonna say, mainly I remember her from is, uh, well, I know she has a cameo, maybe a couple cameos in Always Sunny, but she did a short film with her father that, uh, Dana Vito directed called Curmudgeons that I really, really like. I've seen that oh, a really? few times now. It's on Vimeo. I would, I'll send you a link. It's really good. Well, did you, she was in, uh, Dumbo. Know that? Was she? Yeah, yeah, she, but she, she had like. Oh, a, wait, no, wait, really yeah, you're right, you're right. You're, no, I, I remember that one. I actually, I do remember that one. I, so. I'm surprised we didn't even talk about it, too. Yeah, because. Yeah. Well, you weren't on that episode for Dumbo. Oh, you're yeah. right. That's why. There you go. Anyway, Jumanji, the next level. My final thoughts on it. Uh, it it's just kind of same as last time. <laughs> like, it's a C. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's the same movie with a, just a couple of extra things. I don't think they go far enough with anything here with any there's nothing about the music there's nothing about it really stands out but you know to me it's not a c because it at least it, there's at least stuff in here that's good i think aquafina actually does do a good impression i won't give away and i think it's it's perfectly entertaining for anybody who goes into the film knowing what they want out of it i don't think it's gonna like i, I can't see a lot of people who really like the first one being annoyed with this one i guess i mean maybe maybe they won't like it as much but i i, I don't know there's so much about it that's like 
the movie again that uh, I predict people will get something out of it to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason we keep going off topic with this one is just because, like you said, it's just more of the same. Yeah. Like, it's really hard to like it, it 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 basically copies a lot of the same things from the last one and it's just more exhausting this time cuz it's less fresh um and the sad thing for me is that like like you said they introduce like nuggets of move uh, nuggets of thematic content or comedy ideas that are intriguing like there's an idea like a body switching that's introduced like i think a little before halfway through the movie that was like okay this is fun like i kind of perked up again i was like this could be fun and then like they basically dropped that almost entirely except for one scene and it's just like again like anything that could have been interesting with the movie they just they drop it for the same joke 50 times in a row and it's it's annoying but like i said people like these movies and that's fine i like the cast for like the most part i mean i enjoy like yeah they're it's fun seeing them together yeah, I mean, they have decent chemistry together, and I'm really bummed this is going to be the last Jack Black movie, which reportedly it is, um, especially ended on this. It would be terrible, but... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of strange, isn't it? the way it is. Well, apparently he wants to spend more time with his family, which, I mean, you can't begrudge him for that, but... For sure. If this is, if this is what's going to end his film career, then I'm, that, that, I think it's going to make me like the movie even less. Well, we still have great Jack Black movies to look back on. Yeah, that's true, but even still, I mean... I mean, it'll be fine. Like, I, I, I will get Jack Black content from his YouTube channel, I guess, or <laughs> something. But uh, I'm a C minus on it. It, it just wasn't anything I particularly enjoyed or really got anything out of, except for all the scenes with Dan DeVito, which are always a treasure. And uh, I will value all of his screen time that we have left on this earth. So, yeah, uh, if you're making a movie and it's going to be a stinker, just cast Dan DeVito because it'll make it a little better. That's my advice for Hollywood. That's a, the big advice of 2019 between Dumbo yeah. and now this. All right. Well, uh, yeah, this film made a, a ton of money in its opening weekend. It was the yeah. box office champion, top of the leaderboards. It made 60 million in North America, and uh, its worldwide total is over 212 million at this point. So it's a bona fide hit, which, and it, it made way more money than the last film did two years ago. I think almost double. I think we'll get a third one. Domestic earnings. I think we will. I think that's inevitable. And especially because it looks like with like Christmas Day coming, I mean, I, I'm starting to think maybe Cats isn't going to be the big box office draw that <laughs> Universal had in mind. So between this and oh, Star man. Wars, I think it's I think those are going to be the big event movies over the next few weeks. And it's that yeah. uh, based on projections or just what you feel in your heart. I feel in my heart and also just some of the like. Well, I've seen some of the pre-sale numbers and I'm like, ooh, that's yeah. not very good. No, you never know. You never know because musicals in December tend to yeah. have really good legs. So Cats Absolutely. could be one of those things that just it finds its audience and then some. But John, I don't know. This Christmas, you will believe. Keep that in mind. <laughs> I will lose all nine of my lives more like. But all right, that is <laughs> Jumanji, the next level. Let's talk about this next film. This, this is an interesting one. This is Black Christmas, which I kind of joked about earlier. This is a new slasher film. It's the second remake of the 1974 cult mm-hmm. classic Black Christmas. Surprised it didn't come up for extra milestone. Yeah. But yeah, I guess uh, Sam wasn't feeling it. I don't think he considers it an extra milestone. Which is a shame because I watched this movie for the first time this weekend. It's fantastic. Holy cow, this is a, it's a great movie. Like I and not even like by horror standards, like it's just a really, really well made movie. It really is. Uh, I rewatched the trailer recently and I forgot like just how 
terrifying it is. But yeah, it's it's a really, really good movie worth seeking out and adding to your holiday rotation. Yeah, and um, I'll just, like, for a little horror history, this is, like, kind of predates the slasher genre. This came I out, actually, about I think, to say like, that. four years before. Yeah, four years before Halloween, which kind of what people, I think, assume, like, was the beginning of the uh, slasher genre as we know it. But, yeah, yeah, this is one that, yeah, I think that's why you kind of dignify it as a cult classic. Is that why you're, you're, yeah. you're going with that term? We, we sort of have gone, we've sort of talked about this before, but... The John Carpenter has claimed that like he was influenced by Black Christmas when he made Halloween, which makes a lot of sense because it's another sort of like seasonal horror movie. Uh, the Black Christmas was made by Bob Clark, and it, it really did not find its audience in the early seventies or the mid seventies. I'd be remiss if I didn't note that <laughs> if you don't know, story. Bob Clark also did a Christmas Story, so he has yeah. made two classic Christmas movies on completely different spectrums, which is and they're both fantastic. His career yeah. is fascinating. He really, it really is. But yeah, so. That, that film was obviously one that I think Hollywood has, has tried twice now to recapture the the opportunity there to have like a really successful yeah. horror Christmas movie. We, we've had good horror, horror Christmas movies since, but we haven't had a lot that have really done well at the box office. Yeah. And I will say with this one, I think the 2006 one that you're referring to for this, for the original remake of Black Christmas, that's a little more traditional to your to like a, what a quote unquote remake of that movie would be. This is like a loose remake from what I can tell. It really like is. I think that's yeah. what they're going off of. Yeah. Well, I would say the 2006 one, it's, it's kind of like the Rob Zombie Halloween movie where they really focus right. on like, well, who's the killer and like getting into the psychology of the killer. Uh, it's from the director yeah. of Hostel, And I, I think mm-hmm. it kind of famously like sunk his career. If I recall, Did it? Uh, I think, I think it was a pretty big misfire. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it when I was like a teenager or a preteen. I remember not liking it, but I don't remember much else from it. Just remember it being kind of grimy and gross, too. Is it a good cast? I don't even remember who's in it. Yeah, it's uh, Michelle Trachtenberg, Katie Cassidy, okay. uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, those three. Mm, okay. Very good cast. And so this is Katie Cassidy. Cast. I think she was still making like Supernatural at the time. So this is before she was on Arrow. Yeah. And I think Michelle Trachtenberg was about to be on Gossip Girl, and then Mary Elizabeth Winstead was about to be on Scott well, she Pilgrim. Was in, so, like Euro Trip before that, I think. Yeah. So now we have a new remake, and this one was directed and written, or was directed by Sophia Tacall, co-written by her, and written by April Wolf. April Wolf is a film critic who you and I are more familiar with. Uh, she's written for yeah. a lot of great publications, and uh, somebody you can find on the old film Twitter. So great to see her name on the marquee. Yeah, when I saw that in the credits, I was like, is that the April Wolf? I oh, was so like, you didn't know that back, going like, in. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I think I did, but I'd forgotten until oh, I watched okay. the movie. Uh, maybe because I, I I think I remember she was tweeting about the PG-13 rating, but I just didn't. I guess I didn't put two ah. and two together until the credits. So. I, I definitely was well aware that she had worked on this film by this point. I had seen a lot of her tweets about it, and I, I had read some of the reports, and I, I was really excited going into Black Christmas to, to support somebody who I really respect. And they, they did make this film very quickly. You know, I've talked about this off the air. Like they made this in like, uh, I think Sophia Tacall actually said today, they, they made this film in about eight months from like the start of pre-production. So really, really rapid thing as you were alluding to earlier. Yeah. I was gonna say, I think they announced it in June. The screenplay was done before Sophia Tacall uh, was attached to it, I want to say. Oh, really? Okay. I believe so. Well, even though she's this co-screener? It was yeah, but because I think they had to do a bunch of stuff to change it or to like to okay. update it. Yeah. Uh, so the stars Imogen Poots, Elise Shannon, Lily Donahue, Brittany O'Grady, 
Carrie Ells, and it's uh it's Blumhouse. I was about to say, I was like, wait, who made this again? <laughs> it's uh, Jason Blum, <laughs> Universal. So another Universal film. Uh, but what what is it about, Will Ashton? What's the synopsis? Um, so like I said, it's a loose remake of Black Christmas. Um, Black Christmas pretty famously is like a kind of a bare bones plot where it was like a uh, sorority is being stalked by this uh, unknown harasser on the phone. And then like there's just this constant sense of dread as like uh, different women in the fater- or, uh, f- sorority get killed. This one, it's kind of going for something similar, but the broader scope of the movie is uh, talking more about the uh, general Me Too movement and also particularly the Kavanaugh trials that were happening last year, I believe, right? That was 2018. Yeah, there, there are like specific references and call-outs to yeah. that moment in time. Yeah, but um, the main, like I said, Lindsay is uh, Emma Jean Poots, and she is, uh, I believe, she's a junior, I think. I don't know if they specify what grade she's in, but. um, Well, no, you're talking about Riley, right? Not Lindsay. Is it Riley? Sorry, Lindsay's, sorry. Lindsay's, Lindsay's, Lindsay's the first, in the first scene. The beginning. Riley yeah. is the main yeah, character. That's right. And that's yeah, right, yeah, she she's definitely been at the, the college for a while at this point because she has like a little sister character. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's like a. Uh, sorority house and she particularly was um assaulted a few years earlier um and she is still coping with that situation and um as uh the christmas season is going on she's an orphan so she doesn't have anybody to go home to so she has uh been a part of what i think it's like called like an orphanage or something that they codenamed it where it's yeah it's like an orphan dinner yeah but they they stay home during the holiday season. They just kind of pal around uh, and enjoy each other's company as the season is uh, going on, and most of the students are back home. Um, but uh, throughout this holiday season, there are um, a bunch of like this mysterious force that is pretending to be like the college mascot, Hawthorne Hathrow, uh is um, yeah Calvin Hawthorne sending him. Yeah, Hawthorne is uh, sending them these very creepy, harassing messages. And uh, as the uh, Christmas season approaches, a lot of uh, terrible things happen. And I, I don't know what else I can really say, because I feel like if I dive too deeply into this, we mm-hmm. might actually get into spoiler territory. One thing I appreciate is they release this, even though it's Christmas, they release it on Friday the 13th. So that's kind of right. fun. Well, I feel like they weren't they aiming for that date. Like, is that know. like the genesis would, of the movie? I guess. I, I, I'm uh, wondering, because I don't know. Like, I, I'm generally not sure. Like, I just wonder if like they saw Christmas, or, like a Friday the 13th in December, and they're like, hmm, we could uh, we could take advantage of this. I don't know. That that seems a little far-fetched to me. <laughs> I, I think, you think so? I, I think so. I think that's like a really weird reason to like, I think they rushed it because they just wanted to release it now and not delay it. But I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I thought they were the trying to meet it, that release date, but I didn't know. I don't know. That seems like a weird reason to be like, I don't, that doesn't, I don't, I don't see any. I mean, not, I'm not saying that's the only reason it got made. I'm not saying that's sure. the only reason it got made. I'm saying. You're, it makes it sound like that's the reason they rushed it, which I don't know. That, like, because they're worried that they're going to miss Friday the 13th in a December. I guess. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how often that happens, but. Once every billion I'm just years. trying to think. <laughs> just like once, uh, it just once in a lifetime. I, I think. Honestly, they're looking. It's a low-budget horror movie. It's only an yeah. hour and a half long. I think that they just had it in their heads that like 
they could do it in this short amount of time because it's a remake. So like, you know, it's, it probably wasn't intended to be a big overhaul of the script. It was probably already like they probably had the cast in mind and they probably wanted it to remain as relevant now as it would be a year from now. Because like a year from now, who knows what's going to be like the political landscape, right? So I'm just speculating. It's, it's easy to speculate, but... Uh, yeah, and I don't want to assume anything either way. Like, I don't want to assume anything as far as like what, what the intent of uh, making in six months was. But um, yeah, go continue what you were saying. Uh, it's basically it. Uh, this movie kind of okay. landed with a thud. Uh, critics are mostly split on it and audiences don't like it. And I, my review is pretty simple. I honestly think that like it's a good idea. Like, I think the idea mm-hmm. of taking what was specific to the original which is like women being stalked in a frat house and then turning yeah. it into like taking that to a conclusion that's relevant today. I think that's a good idea. And that's what horror tends to do. Mm-hmm. It tends to take things that are really like real anxieties that are on people's minds and then using genre to present them in a way that like is compelling. I just think when it yeah. comes to the actual execution of this slasher, of the actual thrills right. and kills, they're just not very interesting and well done. And I think people are criticizing yeah. this film and saying that it's it's unsuccessful because of the political stuff, because they don't like the political stuff and they don't like the what this film's yeah. point of view is. And I think that's a totally different right. conversation. If- yeah, I mean, there's this weirdest conversation recently online where it's like people want to act like horror movies aren't political and it just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think Joe Bob Briggs might tweet something about that weirdly, but like, I mean, to be clear, like, we've talked about this several times on the show. All art is political, whether it's intentional or not. I think that's one thing. Like, people are trying to act like the first movie wasn't very political because apparently Bob Clark uh, has said in interviews that they weren't trying to make a directly political film, but it came out like a year after Roe versus Wade, and it's just like the timing of it. Yeah, as long as the execute as well as the execution, like that's what they really stood out to me was that like it is it surprisingly was very timely. Like watching it now, like obviously like the landline phones is this kind of outdated concept, but like I, I the themes of the film felt very relevant to now. But at the same time, I do agree with you that there is a lot of potential to take the concept and make it a lot more directly timely to now. But yeah, I I, I don't really get this idea of like people acting like politics and horror movies is new when that's right. very proven to not be the case. There, There's that sort of extreme position, which is obviously just very strange and I think ignorant of actual film history. There is a position that's a little bit more in between where some people are saying it's like, okay, fine. Yes, movies can be political, but I just feel like some movies nowadays prioritize agenda over the story. Or they feel like it's too obvious and it's not nuanced and subtle enough. And I do think that that can be a valid criticism. And I think I've criticized films for doing the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's different from looking at a film and being like, it shouldn't be political. I think there can be something to be said as like, if your film is nakedly political in a sense that it doesn't like actually have something to say that is unique and distinct mm-hmm. and gets a point across. I do I do see that. I think a good example is Get Out. Get Out is a very political film. Right, and one of the reasons yeah. one of the reasons that film works so well in the way that a lot of the classic horror films do is because its message isn't simplistic. It's it's not an easy film to be like, yeah, mm-hmm. racism is bad. That is not what that film is really getting at. It is, right. but it's not. It's specific and it goes after right. targets who feel comfortable. And when a horror movie Mm -hmm. can make you feel 
and uncomfortable with your own political beliefs without making you feel reactionary defensive, I think that that's a sign of success. And that's what Get Out can mm-hmm. do. It can make people who usually think that they're not racist understand what's actually toxic about their preconceived yeah. notions. And Black Christmas just doesn't really do that. It's just kind of the patriarchy sucks. And it, it's, you know, okay, what else you got? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's trying to do that. Like, it definitely sure. seems inspired by Get Out, particularly by the end. I just think the execution itself gets kind of messy by the end to the point where a lot of this, that that kind of layered commentary gets a little muddled as far as how it's approaching it. That's, I think, where I kind of come from with this movie. I, I think I agree. I, I think that, yeah, when you're it, it's too it, it subverts the genre in ways that I want it to, but it doesn't carry them out to their fullest extent. Like if you're mm-hmm. going to update this type of film and make it totally different and you're going to add something to it this this flavor of like this political timeliness then you well you know like the the actual kills need to be really great too and i i do suspect that this is an example of the rush job and that they didn't have Mm -hmm. time to really present a horror film as meticulously as they could have where to bring up get out again get out that was a film where jordan peele spent so much time figuring out the nuts and bolts of that movie and it shows how like tight it is in this one, it's just, yeah, it doesn't have that same well-thought-outness. Right. I mean, if we were going to talk about Get Out in particular, like, that was a script he had for 10 years. Maybe longer. Exactly. This is a script they had in a month. And I mean, yeah. They do an admirable job, because I don't think this is, like, a terrible right. movie, necessarily. I think it's just kind of average. And I just think it's a bummer that it's average, because, I, I, I like I said before, I think the intentions are good. I think the idea is good. I like this. I like the Black Christmas uh i don't want to call it branding but you know what i mean it's like this this property i think i like horror christmas movies but i'm having the same Mm -hmm. kind of a similar issue that i had with anna and the apocalypse from last year like the zombie musical christmas horror was like oh you have such a good idea but i don't love it and like i just want Mm -hmm. to so badly and that's how i felt with this yeah i mean ultimately i'm i think it's a mostly mediocre movie that i think particularly by the end goes into pretty much of bad film territory uh i i like you said i mean we i think we agree with the politics of the film i think we like champion what the movie is trying to say even when its subtext just becomes text uh i don't even know if there is any real subtext in the movie i think everything it says is pretty explicit about it tries to in a cup i won't give it away but there there's kind of like one scene where it's like a sentient twitter thread and you can maybe sort of read something into that but i do think the movie sort of like takes that idea and absolves the character in a way that kind of annoyed me i was like hey you had a good idea there why did you have to give this person an out it's funny you say sentient twitter account because that's how i felt (laughs) watching this movie was that it it felt like a lot it was a lot telling and it didn't really like i said like you said like get out it's so good at incorporating those themes and telling you what it wants to say, but weaving into the story where it never feels like it's exactly just like saying that outright. Like it, it, it's a very involving story in a way that is talking a lot of present real things right now, but it does also get you into very uh, affecting and uh, engaging empathetic 
filmmaking. And I, I think I appreciate what this movie is doing in that regard. And I, I wish it was better for many of the reasons that you said. But ultimately, I just think it, by the end, it, it undermines a lot of its points with its messiness. And also, I think, with its fairly stock characters. Um, and I, I, I was really bummed by that because, like you said, I mean, this is obviously a really strong premise. And I think it could have been a very um, impacting and timely film. And I really enjoyed um, the director's name is Sophia Teco. Or how do you Sophia pronounce Tukal, name? I think is how you say it. Tikal, yeah. Uh, she made a movie in 2016 called Always Shine, which is one of my favorites of that year. Um, it has Mackenzie Davis, and it's really, really good. I definitely recommend that. I think, I don't know where, I'm not going to even say <laughs> well, what streaming service I think it's on, because I'm going to mess up and have to uh, um, do another retraction next next episode. <laughs> but um, but uh, if you can find that, I'd definitely seek that film out. Unfortunately, I can't say the same for Black Christmas. Uh, this is a C for me. Yeah, I, I want to say a positive thing about it is, the, like I said before, yeah, there, there's a lot of like text or there's a lot of like, uh, well, you kind of said this, like there's not enough showing, there's a lot of telling. One thing they right. they kind of get the showing right, but then they ruin it with too much telling is the trauma that Riley has gone through. So the Imogen Poots character, okay, I mean, right. she's yeah. she's killing it with like that performance yeah, of like she's really great. displaying what trauma yeah. is like, but then the movie undermines her because characters say her trauma to her and it's like it's brought up over and over again mm-hmm. and the the editing in this film isn't very good in service to like we don't need this scene because we already got that point across 10 minutes ago so we don't need this yeah. like every scene needs to serve a purpose and this movie just doesn't have that discipline and it's coming from a director who as you mentioned understands how that works i just think that time crunch that that pressure to just get this thing out mm-hmm. there sort of like made this film suffer a little bit and just being a finished product, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned this briefly, or I may have mentioned this, like speaking of the editing, the, um, I mean, the rating of this, I, we've talked a lot, like PG-13 horror movies, you can do them well. Um, I've championed immensely the uh, Happy Death Day movies, another Blumhouse production. Uh, we also talked about Quiet Place last year. It's a very effective PG-13 horror movie. This it's hard to deny that this was very clearly a PG or an R-rated horror movie that got cut down to PG-13 yeah. to the point where a lot of the deaths like were very clearly edited. A lot of lines of dialogue that are meant to have like a big punch get like watered down because they can't say the full line. It's just like it's 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 I I can't see anyone like not being distracted by that. Unfortunately, like it just seems like they they couldn't really work around that in a way that kept the movie. F- flowing in particularly uh, it's just hard to not notice it i guess what i'm trying to say and it, it's a bummer because yeah. i think it it takes away some of the impact that the movie would have had as a horror movie yeah i i don't know if i'm a c or a c plus because i'm trying to think like i'm trying to think of like other films i've i've thought are c pluses and i'm trying to factor in like would i watch this movie again were, were there enough good things in it and i i just i can't find the things about this movie that would push it to C plus for me. So I guess I, I guess I have to settle for a C. I, I, I guess I have to, to land there. Yeah. I was going to say, I would say go with what your emotions say at this point, not maybe that logic. Just what, what would what would your heart say? <laughs> C or C plus? I, I think C, unfortunately, okay. if, if there had just been one good kill, it's a, it's a slasher movie. And I just don't yeah. think there's a single well executed slasher scene. And I suppose some people might chalk that up to it's like, well, it's a film trying to subvert slasher tropes and it's trying to do different things to the slasher genre. I was like, okay, but if you do that, those scenes 
that you're replacing it with need to be better and they're not like so th- yeah. that's my thing is like it's just it's just generic and that's, instead yeah and i think that's what i really appreciate about the happy death day movies is that they yeah. they find a way to work around it where it's not like obviously we're not seeing the kills but the rest of it is so creative and fun that it doesn't really right. there's a point it too much there's At a least point to how yeah. weird or like you know not mm-hmm. as like suspenseful they are so that's why it works so. right yeah well, that is Black Christmas. Uh, we both gave it C for Christmas. Yep, sure. Yeah, C for or campus, I guess. Campus, Calvin, all kinds of C's. Yeah, that was a bummer. I really, I mean, obviously, I think we both wanted to like that, but yeah, you can't, you can't win them all. All right, let's talk about our next film. This is Richard Jewell, which you haven't seen yet, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. No. Too much. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I, um, I wanted to see this. But unfortunately, due to my scheduling, um, I didn't get a chance. But I ended up seeing Black Christmas, so we could talk about that. Glad you did. Glad you did. Uh, yeah. But the, the sad thing is, th- this was a tough weekend. Um, a, lot, a lot of movies I saw this weekend that I didn't like much. And we'll get to this ne- the one after this, which is the worst of them all for me. But Richard Jewell. Well, Richard Jewell is a biographical retelling of something that happened in the 1990s where a bodyguard at an Olympic concert or a concert during the Olympics discovers a pipe bomb. And pretty soon afterward, the FBI and the media start to paint him as the person who would must, who might've planted it in order to make himself seem like a hero. And the movie is about how he's essentially being railroaded. And he's played here by Paul Walter Hauser, who you might remember from Itania, which is another 1990s sort of like media firestorm where he plays somebody who's uh, involved in in that situation. And Sam Rockwell plays his lawyer who sort of has to guide him toward, okay, you need to do this, this, and this if you want to even hope to survive what the media and the FBI are putting him through. Kathy Bates plays his mother. John Hamm plays the FBI agent who's really out to get him. And Olivia Wilde plays Kathy Scruggs, who is a real person who is absolutely completely character assassinated in this movie, but we'll get to that. This is directed by Clint Eastwood, who has had a very interesting career in his later years. Uh, This is a Billy Ray script. Uh, I didn't see 1517 to Paris, but uh, I was a big fan of Sully. That was something that you and I kind of disagreed on. You'd not like Sully. I liked Sully with Tom Hanks and... Uh, I also I liked American Sniper. I, I think that's a very flawed film, but I do I do think that it was uh, a fascinating watch and one that uh, one of the Bradley Cooper performances in like that time period I thought was pretty strong. I think he's done incredible work since. It's much better. But Clint Eastwood's a director who I probably respect more than I just like. I, I don't love most of his films, but yeah, I know I know you have some strong Eastwood opinions. I don't know if I have strong opinions on him per se. I just feel like it. there's no denying that in the right moments, he's a great director. And I think he has a career to prove that. But late period Eastwood, it seems like he is very interested in certain scenes and movies. And Sully, it's obviously the plane scene. And then in fifteen seventeen, the Paris, it's a train sequence. In American Sniper, it's the war scenes. And I think in those moments, he excels. I just think that he has to film the other scenes. It's very apparent they just doesn't give a crap about them and that he just lets those falter and that they produce fairly uneven films, to say the least. I don't know if I could really put that in on this movie, to be honest, because like the big thing, well, I can't like speak for the, this one yeah, right, for sure. I'm just talking about like, yeah. 
I, and I, I think I generally agree with you on what you're saying there. I think that's basically true. But he, he's well known for shooting things in like two takes tops. And, and when if, I say that I respect him, I mean, this is that. a guy who's been, he, he just knows how to make a movie a movie. Like he, from directing to acting, uh, take a film like Gran Torino. I mean, this guy just understands why we watch movies, why we're entertained by them. And it, it can be very effective. He's a guy who inserts his own politics into his films, uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of people who don't share his politics. I know this is kind of the inverse of Black Christmas because Black Christmas was a film with a very liberal left uh, leaning. So in the sense that you know, Clint Eastwood is obviously a very conservative person. And so he puts a lot of conservative stuff in here. He's a very libertarian person. So when you watch one of his films, there, there tends to be sort of a like, don't trust bureaucracy, don't trust the government, don't trust the FBI. And th that's definitely in this film, especially with like the whole media thing. And Sully, he sort of invents a villain for that movie. And it tends to be, yeah. it actually is like the regulators, right? That's something that didn't really bother right. me in that film because, well, it he wasn't- bothered me. It didn't bother me because I think like, okay, you're just trying to make the movie more entertaining because otherwise it's not like it. Otherwise it's just silly feeling kind of guilty for being a hero. So there's sort of like creating a thing to show off his, like what made that guy such a great person. And it did it in a way that I didn't get the sense it was going after anyone. I think Richard Jewell does go too far though. R Richard Jewell actually takes this person who is no longer alive, who is Kathy Scruggs and puts her frames her as a villain who is guilty of doing things that are reprehensible, that are not backed up by any real facts, anything that she reportedly did, in order to make her and the media in general a villain. And yeah, this just sort of feels like to me, like Clint Eastwood is trying to make a film. He's trying to do something here that is pretty agenda-driven. And so for the same reason, like a movie like Black Christmas is going to make people feel uncomfortable, I think Richard Jewell will do the same. And I think in some aspects it might actually be successful. It might actually make you questions like, because I do know a lot of people who are not conservative who do sort of understand that, yeah, the FBI and the media can be extremely troublesome and they can do things and they're worth a lot of criticism. And Richard Jewell, if it's good at anything, it is at showing you how groupthink and how like not questioning things that are in power can actually lead to innocent people getting railroaded to terrible consequences. And it's a pretty sad thing. Now, do I agree with the politics of Clean Eastwood? I just don't. Um, and I think it's just kind of ironic what he's sort of purporting here, considering what some people are, some people are going to take away from it and sort of like glean it onto current events. But that said, you have to look at Richard Jewell as a film and Weirdly enough, of all the films we're talking about this week, besides the outside of our off topics, this is definitely the best one. It's the most cohesive. It has the best performances. I think Paul Walter Hauser especially is just a knockout in this movie. I, I mean, he just, he channels this real life person. He is able to do it in a way where he, he is a flawed human being. He's somebody who, it, it's not a fluke that he was suspected of this bombing. It, there are there actually is like a good reason he had like a troublesome past there are some things that would make him seem like he fits the profile of somebody who would have done what he's being accused of but at no point does paul walter hauser 
play him as this like lionized, do no wrong, everyone's out to get me sort of person. He plays him as somebody who is realistically angry about what's going on, not sure how to channel it, and who is just trying to to lean on the other people in his life without wrapping them up too much in it. The relationship he has with Rockwell and Bates in this movie is just... It, it's what makes the movie, if if it's the train sequence or the plane sequence, it's him and those two characters in a room together talking about what's going on. And that's where this film really excels. I have a lot of issues with how it prevents the Kathy Scruggs character, what it lies about her and what it distorts about this person. Now, I'm not somebody who, I, I don't know Kathy Scruggs or anything like that. I, I You know, there's nothing to that effect. And for all I know, she could be a terrible person or could have been a terrible person. But there's just something very bad taste about villainizing a person who's not here to defend themselves, who doesn't have like there's no basis really to go after this person in this way for the sake of just trying to pin a lot of blame and all this stuff on this this real life person. That stuff really rubbed me the wrong way. And something they do with her character toward the end is especially just like really trite. And I, I thought just a very pathetic way to try to avoid that criticism. Obviously, I can't get into that. But if, if the big flaw with this movie, I, I would certainly be higher up on it, to be honest. If it wasn't so long, it, it goes way too long with its story. And it uh, it does ha- it has that same issue where it's like there's just some scenes that don't need to be there, honestly. They, they don't get anything across that we don't already know. But yeah, Sam Rockwell is still good at playing characters who are definitely uh you know capital p problematic i guess and none of that's really changed i don't know what this film's oscar chances are but if paul walter hauser gets a nomination i'm gonna be definitely uh definitely enthusiastic about him uh, in the running for best actor because he he really is somebody to watch uh for roles that are not conventional you know he's not a conventional movie actor and i think that's what makes his performance all the more of a standout uh, I didn't mention this film's produced by a lot of people, including Jonah Hill and Leonardo DiCaprio. So it kind of gives you a sense of like, it's not a film that's like certainly all about politics or politics, the movie. It really is sort of capturing this moment in time and presenting it in a way that I, I do think is challenging for, for the good reasons, but it's also challenging for reasons that I think are a little sketchy. But I do think it's worth a watch if you're interested, and I don't think it's offensively bad in any respect. So uh, I, I really was waffling between C plus and B minus. I think the length is the big thing that I think is going to get in people's way, but I'm going to give this one a B minus. Uh, I, I think that it does nail the landing, and it's just really hard to get around some of these performances. And, and I did connect with this character. Uh, definitely a film to watch with both eyes wide open on some of the things that are going on. Uh, I, I'm so glad Jonah Hill did not end up playing this character, which was the original plan. And I'm also really glad DiCaprio wasn't the lawyer. I think he was also supposed to be. I think that's why they helped produce the film, in fact. Uh, and I'm very curious what the Paul Greengrass version of this film would have been. Uh, would have I, I wonder how different it would have come across. But uh, for what we got, uh, I'm glad that we, we do have it as sort of this time capsule, this moment in time. So uh, a, a B minus for me. Could, could have been a lot better, but I definitely appreciate it uh, on its own terms. Not a box office success for sure. It's only made $5 million. This is a $45 million film, and it is bombing. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't this considered the worst opening for a Clint Eastwood movie? 
I, I think that's right. So the mule was just last year and the mule ended up doing okay. Like it, it had a weak opening, but it had legs. Like people kind of discovered it mm-hmm. over the course of January. Richard Jewell could have that same uh, success, like that slow burn. Uh, I think it's coming out in a really crowded time. I think a lot of people aren't really understanding like what the movie is yet. Uh, I don't think the trailer is as effective as the mule was personally and including 1517 and American Sniper, a lot of Clint Eastwood's films, they, they tend to have really good hooks of like, ooh, what, what's going to happen in this movie? I'm kind of interested. And Richard Jewell... Well, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. You say that. I don't know. I thought that trailer was really effective. I think it's Jewell. effective, but I don't think it's as like mainstream effective. Like I, I don't think it has that same sort of like, I got to see this. I just think it has kind of like a creative like tension to it that's interesting without... But it doesn't do enough, I think, to let people know what the movie is. And that's sometimes marketing needs to spoon feed a bit. And with a name like Richard Jewell, that might be hard because a lot of people don't know who that is. And so it can be, it might just be hard for this film to be finding its audience so far, but I think it, it might, it it could over the next few weeks. We don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, I do know that there's like a lot of uh, media controversy for the Kathy Shrugs thing you're talking about. And I don't know if that's going to deter people from seeing it or get them to see it. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I'm definitely curious to check this one out. As I've mentioned already, I'm kind of at a... I have complicated feelings towards late period Clint Eastwood. I, I don't... I mean, with the exception of Sully, to an extent, I, I feel like I don't really have that strongly negative feelings towards his films. I just feel like they're just kind of frustrating because you can see the quality in key scenes, and you can really see the indifference in many others. Um, I think most famously, uh, the baby doll scene in American Sniper is a pretty key example and a very commonly uh, talked about one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he's a fascinating director. Um, I, I Obviously, I think when he is on his game, he can make some really quality movies. Uh, and the story is fascinating enough that I would be willing to check it out. But what you're hearing seems to sound pretty much what I expected from uh, a Clint Eastwood version of this movie. All right. Well, let's wrap up this this episode of reviews with Six Underground, a new Netflix film. And oh, yeah. I am ready to talk about Six Underground, the latest film directed by Michael Bay. I think his last film was Transformers last night and then 13 hours before that, I want to say. Am I missing one? Uh, No, I think that's correct. Okay. So it's been a while. And I think th- this is a film that Netflix came to Michael Bay and was like, money is no object. Um. Uh, Michael yeah. Bay is not a screenwriter. He doesn't write his movies. This is from Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese. And it stars Ryan Reynolds, Melanie Laurent, Manuel Garcia Rufo, Adria, Adria Arjona, Corey Hawkins, Ben Hardy, and Dave Franco. And it's produced by Skydance. So it's kind of got like a Netflix Skydance partnership. I'm not sure how, how much that's happened. Um, I'm not as aware of that connection. But Six Underground, Will, how do we describe this movie? How are we going to do this? It just came out a few days uh, ago. Stuff blows up real good. <laughs> Cars crash a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could you maybe say it's like if Dirty Dozen was made by a teenager who only grew up watching Michael Bay films? I would say it's more A-team than Dirty Dozen, but I sure. can see that. A lot of A-team in there. Um, but, I mean, the general, pl- uh, the general plot is that um, there is a six-team group of I don't like I don't know if it's fair to call them assassins I think one of them's assassin one's like a hitman yeah they 
one of their stated goals is to like take down dictators, right? By assassinating them. Yeah. There's more to it. Yeah. They they have different roles of like you're the driver, you're the the right. person the parkour guy. It's 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 a mix of things. It's like a literal suicide squad kind of thing where it's like they all fake their deaths so that they can kind of be like unnamed people, but they don't really work for the government. They work for Ryan Reynolds character, yeah, who's sort of like an unhinged Yeah. Yeah, but they, yeah, they, they just kind of like throw everything in the wind and just like they know they could die at any minute. Right. And they're just trying to like save the day, basically. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds is like this sort of Bruce Wayne. But if Bruce Wayne was like, uh, I, I don't know if Bruce, if Bruce Wayne was like the worst version of himself, I guess it's fair to say, like just this very detached, cynical billionaire who, who just wants to solve all the problems with his money and with these people. Yeah. Yeah. If he was in Gotham, didn't wear a suit and just violently murdered people. <laughs> uh, so, if, yeah, if he was Michael Bloomberg uh, or sorry, yeah. Michael Bloomberg's fantasy uh, incarnate. Sure. But yeah, it, it, that's kind of the setup. They, they all have like these unique functions. This movie is wild. It is it's it's Michael Bay unfiltered. I, I think it's like the, the biggest it's it could be a huge compliment for some people it could be a huge huge criticism for others but i honestly will this is the worst movie i have seen in 2019 i don't know how you feel and i know some people are looking at this of like well you know what i enjoy the bayness of it all i enjoy the mayhem i enjoy the loud craziness i thought i thought this movie was an eyesore i thought the story was I don't care if it's supposed to be stupid. It just, it still is stupid and it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's over two hours long. It's 128 minutes. It's actually shorter than most recent Michael Bay movies, I think. And yet it's still too long. Like, and I just, yeah. I, I was so over but it. It's like, I know, but I know. Yeah. It, it's just, it's the ultimate indulgent kind of film. And I understand people like Michael Bay for for his auteurness of like he has a specific vision of things and i just don't understand why people look at that as like a plus like his his vision for films i think is just bad like i I just think objectively bad for film i think that it's not bad to like his stuff to be clear i don't think there's anything wrong with liking michael bay movies i've liked a few of them myself I just think that like it is like the worst kind of junk food. It's not just junk food that's bad for you. I think it's junk food that's bad for other people around you uh, because they have to smell it. And I I am just so annoyed that this guy gets the keys to so many castles where and he's not even doing much with it. He's just sort of making like I I shouldn't say that because there are there are some interesting stunts here. There's some good action moments, some good set pieces that genuinely i was just like okay that's that's just great to see but aside from that i think this is a major major dud and i don't like it i'd never want to see it again all right so here's the thing uh i don't disagree with anything you just said for the most part i'm not as strong willed as you are about what you're saying but i think everything you said is basically true however no i kind of had fun with the second half of this movie the second half of this movie i kind of had fun I just don't get, how can you have fun with this movie though? How? Okay. Because they just throw caution at the wind. They, they, the first half of this movie is basically terrible, especially the first 20 minutes. That's like everything you're talking about with the eyesore, like incoherent, senseless movie making where it's just like, 
Michael Bay as most Michael Bay, like obnoxious American characters making awful, awful jokes uh, with a terrible soundtrack, destroying priceless works of art in Europe, uh, just blatantly murdering innocent people uh, with no regard for their well-being. Uh, that was all terrible. Uh, for the two main action scenes in the movie, one involving like a pool apartment kind of thing, and another involving a boat and magnets, uh, I thought they were very inventive and fun. Uh Maybe not very fun, but enjoyable enough. Amusing, I guess, would be the word I'm thinking. To the point where I was more willing to forgive the film than I think you were. And I'm not a Michael Bay fan at all. Like, I don't like his movies. The closest I think I've come to liking one of his movies was Pain and Gain. And I think his... I think his lack of restraint kind of sunk that movie, but I think that's the opposite where like that, that movie, I think it started off really strong and then like he just didn't have the restraint to like nail that as, as when like it gets really kooky. For me, this movie, like it, the beginning of it is just terrible and then the end of it just gets so gleefully bonkers that I was kind of with it as far as I, I've seen so many movies this year where I just felt nothing watching them. Uh, Jumanji, the next level being a prime example of this where I'm just like, why am I watching movies? Like I just don't feel anything anymore. And this is a movie where I didn't really like it for the most part, but I did feel something and I did see a film that was driven by a filmmaker. And I was like, well, if I have to choose a gravely blank movie where it could have been Steve from accounting directing it for all I know, or a movie that is definitely made by a filmmaker. Even if it's a vision I don't particularly like, at the end of the day, I'm going to support the latter. Though I, I agree with you that I'd rather see less than more Michael Bay movies in the future. I, I want to be so clear. I don't want people to feel bad for liking Michael Bay movies. I don't. And I, I don't. I, think that I don't like them people, for most If part. people have fun with them and if they if they watch them or they watch this movie and they have a good time, that's cool. That's totally cool with me. Uh, I, it really is. I, I just can't. I can't do it. I, I just I can't do it, Will. I, there's just too much it's too much movie and even those scenes you're talking about i wanted to like them because i did the magnets thing especially the problem for me is just, mm-hmm. it just it keeps going and going and i'm just the editing is so out of touch and it, it doesn't add to anything and to me that's the film when i feel like i'm wasting my time and i'm not getting anything out of it i i know what you're talking about was like those films where you feel nothing but i think maybe i just have a different tendency to like even in those films i can at least meditate on what's happening and appreciate certain aspects as long as it's still going along and flowing along even a movie like jumanji the next level you know i can still laugh here and there and i can still enjoy man you know like karen gillen is just such a dynamic performer that kind of thing but with this movie i just constantly i do agree about karen gill in this case in this movie i just i'm constantly being like i don't like this i don't like this and i just want to stop and i should have i should have just turned it off it was that kind of experience for me. I'm sad to say, and I, I have nothing else to say about Six Underground. I, I, it's a D. That's actually higher than I anticipated you being. But um, I would agree with you. I think if I saw this in theaters, and I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I think I'd be a lot more negative than I ultimately was because I've only seen one Michael Bay movie in theaters. Uh, it was a press screening of 13 Hours. And I just remember getting a headache afterwards. Like it was just it was like a constant barrage of senses. So I can't imagine like what it must be like. I've seen most Michael Bay films in theaters. So this is. This is probably the first one I haven't since I didn't see Pain and Gain in a theater. But man, that's yeah, about it. Yeah, thirteen hours is the only one I've seen. Yeah, thirteen hours is the only one I've seen in theaters. Um, and that was one more that I was anticipating ever seeing in theaters. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it just being on Netflix and like allowing me to like kind of like check in, check out of the movie whenever I want made yeah. it more palatable for me. I don't know. If, I mean, admittedly, I'll, I mean, I'll 
I'll say up front that I didn't watch this in one sitting. Uh, just because mostly because of my schedule this weekend. I didn't but. either. It was too long. I had to stop it uh, close to the third act. I, I was making food while I was watching this film. I nearly burnt my entire kitchen down. That's what happened. Oh, man. And then you end up in the six underground. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm dead. It, yeah. It's funny, too. It's like I th- there are a few Bay films I haven't seen in theaters like The Rock and the first Bad Boys. But I did see Armageddon. And that was a formative movie experience for six-year-old John in theaters. That film and the first Transformers. And I think for me, I I didn't understand what was weird about Michael Bay to me until Transformers, uh, the second one, Revenge of the Fallen, where that was clearly a film that I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Like, I couldn't understand why it was the way that it was. And I feel like I've I've been trying to figure out Michael Bay... And what he's trying to what he's trying to get across ever since. It's not just like the booty shots, you know, where he feels like every woman yeah. needs to be shot like this is like she's on some sort of catalog. Yeah, which is always gross. Even this movie where it's like fairly toned down in that regard, surprisingly, it still felt very gross. I, I, I don't I don't know. I still don't understand this guy. And I wish his movies would do a better job of getting that across, at least to me personally. Maybe some people have it, have it all figured out. But for me, I'm disinterested in the Enterprise. I, I don't really care at this point. I'm, I, I just, I, if this is the last Michael Bay film I ever see because I decide not to watch any of his next films, I wish nothing ill on this person, on Michael Bay himself. I've, I've heard that he's tough to work with, but uh, I don't know. You know what? Here's what it is. I think Michael Bay just wanted to make a movie about what it's like, what he thinks it's like to be a director where he's this guy with all this money and he has all these people mm-hmm. working for him on this film. And he's like, we're not a family. You're not soldiers. We're making this movie and we're making it my way because no one else is making movies like this, baby. And then here's what happens. They warm his heart and they say, you know what, Michael Bay, you need to, you need to connect better with your coworkers. And he's like, you know what? I didn't, this is based on a totally different script, but I'm, I'm going to make a movie out of this. And if, if that's what this movie is fine, I give it a, Fine, watch it if you watch it if you want. I don't care. All right. Well, I'm gonna give it a C. <laughs> I don't know. I just I I get where you're coming from. I just didn't really feel that strongly or passionately about it. It just felt like I mean, in the end, like I I don't like Michael Bay much as a filmmaker. I don't really know much about him as a person. Um, I haven't really enjoyed any of his movies. I didn't really even like this one that much. I just had some fun with like two key scenes, but uh, yeah. I mean. You'll know what you get coming into this. Like whatever your conception of uh, an extreme, like the most extreme Michael Bay movie would be, this might exceed it even beyond your wildest expectations, at least in the beginning. Um, But I don't know. In a weird way, I kind of respect it. In a weird way, I kind of detest it. In a weird way, I'm fascinated by it. But it wasn't nothing for me. (laughs) Like I got something out of it, which is more than I can say for a lot of movies this year. Six Underground is now on Netflix. It costs reportedly $150 million to make. I suspect it's much higher than that based on some of the stunts and explosions they pulled off in here. But you can watch it this holiday season. And I'm curious how many people are going to be like, oh, let's watch Six Underground together as a family. Yikes. Um, this This is a gory, messy, violent movie. Not for kids. Not for any kids. Honey, Star Wars is sold out. What are we going to do? Well... We can watch Six Underground on Netflix, or we can watch Cats. <laughs> uh, kids, oh Six Undergrounds or Cats? 
cats, cats. All right, get in the van. (laughs) (laughs) Then you see the dad looking longingly at the TV, like, until next time. (laughs) All right, end of show. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Cinemaholics. Next week, we're talking about Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. We might be doing it a bonus show for cats uh, because our schedules are going to be a little wonky before the holidays, but we'll be reconvening soon to talk about those movies and more on the next episode of Cinemaholics. Until then, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you love podcasts. And hanging out with us on Facebook and Twitter. Links to our social medias in the show notes, along with our email, Patreon, all that good stuff. We'll see you all next week from the Internet California. I am John Negroni. And for the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashley. We'll see you next time. <laughs>